Hello, everybody, and welcome to Boston Confidential, Boston's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America. Buckle up, because we're getting ready to go. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. I'm your host, Barry McGuire. And I wanted to get right to it today. We have a long story, and it's a sad story. It's the case of Darlene Tiffany Moore, and it occurred in the Grove Hall section of Boston, Massachusetts in August 1988. I kind of want to set the stage a little bit for you. Grove Hall at the time was a very rough neighborhood. Think this stretch of Humboldt Street was littered with burned out homes, vacant lots, and broken down down cars. It was a high crime, high gun area. Boston was going through its crack cocaine epidemic, but this section of Humboldt Street at Homestead was known as Heroin Alley. So it had a dual deficiency. Homicides in the area were up in 1988. During the entirety of uh, 1988, there were 95 homicides. That number would jump to 158 homicides by 1990. Boston hadn't really recognized its growing gang problem, and the Boston police, for their part, had failed to publicly state that there were several gangs in the area of Dorchester and Roxbury. I believe I had stated in the first episode that there were thousands of gang members. That was not exactly true, but there were at least hundreds in the Grove Hall section, in the Roxbury section of Boston. So make no mistake, this was a high crime area, high drug area. The Boston Globe described the culture of Grove Hall at that time as being one of cash, clothes, and cocaine. In about a two-mile, two two-square-mile radius, there were several gangs. There was the Humboldt Gang itself, Castlegate, which they were perpetually at war with. And there was the Intervale Street Gang, the Franklin Field Giants, and a few other ones. But those were the big names uh, during the 80s and 90s. So it was a hot summer in 1988, and as we approached... August 19th, 1988, Tiffany Moore was playing with a group of friends at the intersection of Humboldt Street and Homestead Homestead Streets. Tiffany was sitting on a mailbox while approximately 12 other children played in the area around her. Unfortunately, there were some gang members present as well. It was getting dark. It was actually just after twilight so it was beginning to get dark in the neighborhood but people were still out it was a summer night the temperature was between 75 and 80 degrees one of the kids tiffany was playing with trell mcpherson reported later that she was looking directly over tiffany's shoulder when she saw two to three males come running across 
a patch of grass which housed a, an Edison station power plant. The Edison company was Boston's utility company at the time. And those males continued to run towards the group and began opening fire. She later reported that all three were masked in Halloween-type masks. Shooting began and everybody ran. Everybody except Tiffany Moore. She was struck two to three times, but at least once in the head. The autopsy went on to report that the injury to the head was devastating and completely incompatible with life. Tiffany Moore was 12 years old. There have been various reports as to the names of the gang members, the Humboldt gang that were present that day near the mailbox, but they were believed by police and later by prosecutors to be the actual target. Tiffany was the epitome of an innocent bystander. Tiffany's mother had moved from Boston to South Carolina, and this day, August 19th, was actually Tiffany's last day in Boston. She was due to depart back to South Carolina. The child's mother, Tiffany's mother, had become concerned about the growing gun problem, crime problem in Grove Hall and had moved Tiffany to live with relatives, but she had come back for the month of August to visit her mother. So imagine, if you will, when this story hit the paper the next day, the outrage it garnered. This innocent child visiting her mother, playing on a mailbox with other children, the case took the city of Boston by storm, and that engendered a massive police response. The Boston police were not unfamiliar with the gang activity in the area, and pretty quickly they had surmised that this was a botched gang hit. The two gangs that were warring at that time were the Humboldt, Street Gang and Castlegate. And this was believed to be, this shooting was believed to be in retaliation for the wounding of a Castlegate gang member approximately two weeks prior. Both the Castlegate gang and the Humboldt Street Gang were the largest gangs in the area. And Humboldt at the time was described as a bulldozer of a gang. It was said by police at the time, the if you killed a humble gang member's dog, they would kill your entire family. They were that vicious. The Castlegate gang also had a fearsome reputation, and the two just could not share any type of drug turf. So as you can imagine, there was a massive police response. The case hit the newspapers, and both of our daily newspapers, both the Herald and the Globe. This was front page news. And I can't overstate how much coverage this case got due to the fact that Tiffany Moore was 12 years old, completely innocent and ready to leave the city over drug violence. It captured the hearts and minds of everybody in the city, in every part of the city. So tremendous pressure was brought to bear on the police department for a resolution in this case. The streets were so bad in Grove Hall at that time that the, 
there were actual talks of having the National Guard activated in patrolling that section of Dorchester. About two weeks after the murder of Tiffany Moore, two suspects were arrested in the neighborhood in the entire city of Boston breathed a sigh of relief. Sean Drumgold, age 22, and Terrence Taylor were arrested for the murder. Sean Drumgold was a 22-year-old drug dealer, but he was not a known gang member. Mr. Drumgold had previously used firearms and had been shot at himself more than once. Drumgold's co-defendant, Terrence Lug Taylor, led a similar life. He had been in and out of prison, sold drugs, and was basically a tough guy in a very tough section of the city. The duo was held without bail and grand jury proceedings were initiated. Typically, in the vast majority of cases, the grand jury is the prosecutor's playground. If you've ever heard the saying that you could indict a ham sandwich, that sums up what happens in the grand jury. The prosecution outlines its case and gives a probable cause statement. And if the grand jury accepts it, they will return what is known as a true bill, which means an indictment. Or if the prosecution's efforts fail, that's called a no bill. The defense is not given an opportunity to enter facts or any evidence for that matter. The grand jury proceedings in this case did not get off to a good start. Strangely, there were only two witnesses called by the prosecution, one of which directly contradicted the state's case. This witness, named Tracy Peaks, had a pretty significant run-in with prosecutors over the description of clothing she had stated that Mr. Drumgold had worn on the day of the murder. They, the descriptions appeared to be completely at odds, but Miss Peake stood her ground and would have been a good witness for the defense if the defense was allowed to participate in the grand jury process. The second witness, I know it's only it's hard to believe that the prosecutors submitted two witnesses to the grand jury. But the second witness, Antonio Country Anthony, a friend of Drumgold's, provided some the key testimony. Otherwise, I don't believe they would have gotten an indictment at all in this case. Anthony stated that he had been with them, the two defendants, prior to the shooting, and they were both armed and agitated. Now, this witness had stated, given his testimony in a taped interview to Boston Police Detective Walsh, and that was played during the grand jury, and that sealed Drumgold and Taylor's fate. The witness, Country Anthony, had stated that just prior to the murder, he was with Drumgold and Taylor, but he was dropped off. Uh, Anthony was dropped off at the Dudley MBTA station, a nearby transit hub. So basically his testimony was he had left the two defendants in the area of the shooting with two 22 caliber weapons and they were angry and looking for trouble. 
coincidentally, the weapons used against Tiffany Moore were two 22 caliber handguns. That has to be one of the shakiest indictments I've ever heard of. One witness blatantly calls into question the detective's narrative, and the second witness only provides a negligible timeline and two weapons that have never been tested or found. Very, very shaky. I don't know how they got a true bill on this, but that is the grand jury process, not only in Massachusetts, but most of the country. So both Drumgold and Taylor were indicted and held for trial, which took place about a year later. The trial lasted 11 days and approximately 50 witnesses were called. By the end of the trial, Drumgold's co-defendant, Terrence Taylor, had won a directed verdict of not guilty because none of the prosecution witnesses placed him at the scene or could tie him to the crime in any way. So he received a directed verdict. But Sean Drumgold was not so lucky. The state's trial strategy was is kind of a weird one for a gang case. What the state of Massachusetts was trying to prove was that both Drumgold and Taylor were working as hitmen for the Castlegate Street Gang. Now keep in mind, this wasn't a La Cosa Nostra type organization. Castlegate took care of their own retribution and in the street was not known for hiring out um, retribution to get back at people would harm them. It goes against the gang code. They took care of their own business. So this raised some eyebrows from local gang investigators and even other prosecutors. The witnesses all taken together placed Sean Drumgold at the scene, but the case was very shaky and it seems as though Drumgold's trial attorneys did not attempt to attack the eyewitness identification. As we know, 25% of all, all eyewitness identifications are wrong, and a lot of them are dead wrong. Studies have shown this. I have a degree in sociology, and I've studied it a little bit. So when people are convicted by eyewitness testimonial alone, it kind of raises the hair, hairs on the back of my neck, knowing how unreliable this type of evidence is. But the political pressure and the media coverage of this case was absolutely intense in the city. I haven't seen anything like it since. The total lack of physical evidence in this case is startling. There was no DNA. This was at a time before DNA. But there was no fingerprints. They never recovered the masks. They never recovered the guns. The gun gunmen were fully masked, masked, excuse me, to all accounts. All witnesses said the perpetrators were masked adult males. The defense attorney's challenges to these witnesses were weak at best, and I believe opened the door for Sean Drumgold's later appeals. The ineffectiveness of counsel was so readily apparent in this case, I would have thought that an appeal would have been granted much, much sooner. Sean Drumgold was convicted of first-degree murder 
and sentenced to a mandatory life in prison. Keep in mind there was no physical evidence, only eyewitness testimony in this case. Before we move on to the appeal, I just want to touch base a little bit on some of the witnesses that the prosecution presented during the trial. If the lack of physical evidence in this case has given you pause, wait till you hear about some of these witnesses. Totally mind-boggling. The first witness I'd like to discuss is a witness named Mary Alexander. She was 22 years of age in 1988, and she lived at 72 Homestead Street, right in the vicinity of the intersection where the crime occurred. She was visited by Boston police detectives who were canvassing the area approximately a week later. During the initial interview, Miss Alexander told the detectives that she saw two men walk past her on Homestead Street, putting what she believed to be two pistols into their waistbands. She said their pants, but I'm assuming she means the waistband. She said at that time she could not make a positive identification on either of the two men. It's unclear if she said in her first statement if the two men were masked. But Mary Alexander did not make a positive ID until 13 months later, just as the trial, uh, Drumgold's trial started. Drumgold by that time had been in the newspapers and on television almost nightly or at least weekly since then. So there was plenty of, plenty of opportunity for a witness to have been contaminated by the media. In the year since she made her first statements to police, she went from not being able to identify either man to saying at trial that she would never forget Sean Drumgold's eyes. This was the star witness that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was waiting for. Somebody who said, I saw you there. And not only did I see you there, I saw you there putting weapons in your pants. Mary Alexander was, without a doubt, the star witness of this case. Jurors that were interviewed after the trial indicated that Mary Alexander's testimony really pushed the needle towards guilty in this case. For, for Sean Drumgold, his co-defendant was uh, exonerated. I'm very curious in this case as to where the defense attorneys were for Sean Drumgold during his original trial. This is a 180 degree turn from Mary, Alex Mary Alexander's original statement. She went from, I couldn't identify them, to, I'll never forget his face. Startling to me. I don't, I don't have the trial transcripts, but... I would love to have seen that cross-examination. The police knew that Mary Alexander had brain cancer. It's unclear if the prosecutors knew as well. If the prosecutors knew that Mary Alexander had brain cancer and did not disclose it to the defense, that is a direct Brady violation. They're supposed to turn that over into dis in during discovery. It's unclear if they ever did, but... The defense attorneys in this case on this specific in issue 
were missing in action, simply missing in action on this case. In another sad note of this case, the witness Mary Alexander died from brain cancer in 1991. If you think that the issues surrounding the testimony of Mary Alexander were interesting or strange, let me tell you the story of witness Ricky Evans. Mr. Evans literally came out of nowhere in this case. The Boston police detectives were talking to him about his involvement in another murder. He was actually a victim of a shooting. And during his interview, a detective, without reason, simply asked Ricky if he knew anything about the Tiffany Moore case. And Ricky Williams certainly laid it out there. The problem is, this testimony, some have called it made up out of whole cloth. A total fabrication, and I think you're going to see why. The police really got lucky running into Ricky Evans in this case. It was 10 months after the murder, and the case wasn't going well. The There was no physical evidence, as I've stated before, no DNA. This was before DNA. They never recovered the guns, and they never recovered the masks. But all of a sudden, they stumble upon Ricky Evans. And what Ricky Evans relayed was, on the night of the murder, he exited his apartment building on Elm Hill Avenue, which is in direct proximity to the area on Humboldt, where the murder took place. He said he ran into these two gentlemen, uh, Drumgold and Taylor, who immediately began talking about the fact that they were planning to commit a murder that very night. They were armed with two pistols and appeared agitated. Evans stated that Taylor was overheard by him saying to Drumgold that he knew exactly where the Castlegate gang leaders were that were marked for assassination. But the coincidence continues. Evans further stated that after the murder, he again met up with the two suspects and they were acting strange and told Evans that they had ditched the pistols. Now, keep in mind, these are two experienced street criminals openly talking about a murder with somebody who was not involved. It just doesn't ring true to me on any level. These, these guys simply wouldn't do that. It seems to have been made up, as I've said before, out of whole cloth after the police saw this case going sideways. During this time, Mr. Evans had his own trouble. He had been arrested for uh, distribution or possession with intent uh, to distribute crack cocaine and some other minor misdemeanor cases. But after his testimony, and another coincidence in this case, all Mr. Evans's troubles go away. The cocaine charge a high-level charge, with a ten, it was a 10-year felony, was continued without a finding. The rest of the cases, including a stolen cob beef, also went away. What didn't come out till after the trial was the fact that one of the detectives was paying Ricky Evans to stay at a hotel, a Holiday Inn in Dorchester, and he paid for that for eight months. 
He also bought him clothes, food, and gave him cash assistance. Now, I know for a fact that this money wasn't coming out of a Boston Police Detectives Fund. This had to have been funded by the District Attorney's Office. None of this was ever relayed to the defense. And again, I keep hearkening back to a lack of an aggressive defense on behalf of Sean Drumgold in this case. Both Drumgold and Taylor state and have always stated they don't know Ricky Evans, have never met him, and the first time they saw him was when he showed up to testify in this case. I know I'm being repetitive, but two hardened street gangsters who'd spent time in prison are going to casually mention homicide that they're about to commit with a third party that's not involved. And then they're going to talk to him about the case after the murder has been committed by, in terms of just hours. It's mind-boggling, and I simply don't believe it, and I don't think you will either. It appears on the face of it that Ricky Evans' testimony was bought and paid for by the Boston police with the knowledge of the district attorney's office. All right, so you're probably asking yourselves, what is Sean Drumgold's alibi for this day? Well, he does have one, and it's never changed. Drumgold states that him, Taylor, and Country Anthony were at a residence at 23 Sonoma Street, a few blocks from Humboldt, during the time of the murder, visiting their respective girlfriends at the residence at 23 Sonoma Street. Several people can confirm this, and one of which had offered this information to police just after the murder. However, she had a shoplifting warrant and was told by a detective that she could testify, but she may be arrested for shoplifting upon the conclusion of her testimony as she exited the stand. This frightened her immensely, and she obviously refused to testify. The two other witnesses for the Sonoma Street alibi felt the same way, that going to the police would only get them in trouble. One of the potential witnesses stated that she was just living wrong at that time and felt like her lifestyle would be a detriment to people believing her. During the appeals process, some of these residents of Sonoma Street filed affidavits with the court stating that during the time of the murder, they had seen Drumgold Taylor and Anthony at 23 Sonoma Street. And this is one of the reasons Drumgold was granted a retrial in 2003. As I stated previously, Drumgold was convicted on the charges and faced a mandatory life in prison due to the fact that he was convicted of first-degree murder. He served 14 years in prison trying to get an appeal through. An appeal was granted in 2003 and the court ordered that Drumgold deserved a new trial. The case had fallen apart and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts declined to retry Drumgold for murder or any other charges. He was ultimately released from prison in 2003 and he filed a wrongful conviction lawsuit in the federal court in downtown Boston. Ultimately, 
the police misconduct and other irregularities in this case came to light and Mr. Drumgold was awarded $14 million for his wrongful conviction suit. Mr. Drumgold was not out of the woods yet. The case stalled and ultimately Mr. Drumgold settled the case for $5 million with the city of Boston. The city, for its part, seemed keen on getting this wrongful conviction behind them. No one else has ever been charged with the murder of Tiffany Moore. The case remains open and unsolved to this day. And that, my friends, is a sin in and of itself. Tiffany Moore's mother died approximately six years after the passing of Tiffany. And many in the neighborhood stated that they believe she simply died of a broken heart. She was never the same since she always sought justice in this case. But justice has eluded her and Tiffany Moore. I'm often asked, what do I think happened in this case? Was it corruption? Something else? Racism? I believe the Boston police were under immense pressure from the public and the politicians to solve this case. And Drumgold and Taylor fit the bill. They fit the absolute profile of urban drug dealers who were willing to shoot it out in the street. And once they had them, tunnel vision took over and a rush to judgment occurred. In 2011, Sean Drumgold, now a free man, was arrested again in a strange coincidence. He was arrested in a drug house with a substantial amount of drugs that were on the floor but not on his person. And as he was heading to trial, another bo famous Boston case interjected itself into Mr. Drumgold's life. The person testing the drugs on behalf of the Commonwealth was a woman by the name of Annie Ducan. She was later arrested for sabotaging drug cases in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, sometimes snorting the cocaine and doing the drugs that she was supposed to be testing. Ms. Ducan also inflated her resume and falsified her application for employment as a chemist with the Commonwealth. Thousands of defendants had legitimate drug cases thrown out because Annie Ducan had touched their case in some way. Those defendants later became known as Ducan defendants. Ms. Ducan was later convicted and sent to prison but the damage she has done to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and its criminal justice system is still being evaluated to this day. This actually may be a case that we'll cover at a later date. But So Sean Drum Drumgold's 2011 case for possession of drugs was dismissed due to the fact that the chemist was actually snorting drugs while pretending to be working. I honestly hope that somebody in the Boston Police Department or in the State Police, take another look at this case and see if there's anything that can be done. It's such a tragedy. It still ripples through Boston today. But I wanted to thank you for joining me today, and we're going to be getting on to our next episode shortly. But thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.